You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Coronavirus 101, What Frontline Workers and Organizations Need to Know. I'm your host, Sarah Kift, and that's me who you'll be chatting to in the question section. Um, just a little bit about me. I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. And I develop and host webinars for HSABC, as well as instruct mental health first aid and produce podcasts for mental health organizations here in Vancouver. So that's me. And that's who you'll be chatting to. And I'll do my best to share your questions and comments with Corey Ranger, our instructor today, as they come up. So um, I just want to say it's a stressful time for so many of us right now as things are changing and it's a stressful time for those we provide services to. So I want to say thank you for taking the time to join us today. And hopefully the content we provide will help you to lead well and with courage in the midst of this crisis. Again, the situation is changing rapidly, so we welcome your input as we discuss things today, as well as your stories, ideas, and questions. So I'm just going to run a quick poll here. It's another way for us to know who you are and uh, what you're doing right now. And obviously, having been in Frontline, I know that sometimes um, I do all of these things simultaneously. Uh, so just pick the one that best uh, describes what you're doing right now. And if you choose other, feel free to type into the question section and I will uh, share those with Corey so we know who we're talking to today. Let's see. Great. It's great to see um, lots of managers and supervisors on the line today. Um, you, you have a complex role and responsibilities, especially in the middle of this crisis. So we really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your feedback, and uh, hopefully this will be helpful for you and your staff. Great to see some frontline staff, lots of outreach and street workers. A lot of people are doing that now um, when before they were working inside, and now a lot of our work is outside. So great to see you guys on the line, as well as all important support staff and quite a few from the other category. Uh, training coordinators, managers, good. Case managers, wonderful. All right, now I get to the good part. I get to introduce Corey to you. So Corey Ranger is a public health nurse um, and a harm reduction specialist, and he started his career facilitating a bloodborne pathogens program in the Edmonton downtown core. And since that time, he's worked on many different harm reduction teams, as well as doing coordinated programming. He's done some training. Um, he's done some teaching and a lot of advocacy. Um, he has a wealth of experience in both formal and informal education. He worked as an instructor for the practical nursing program at Medicine Hat College. And most recently, he's moved back to Vancouver Island and has taken on the role of project manager for the Provincial Peer Training Curriculum Project with the Government of British Columbia. He's also spent the last two months, two and a half months, on the front lines in homeless encampments. 
um, in Victoria, specifically Topaz and Pandora, as well as other sites. And he's a passionate and effective advocate for safe supply and a humane approach to harm reduction in the midst of this crisis. So, Corey, it's really amazing to have you back with us today. We've really appreciated all the work that you've been doing over the last few months, and um, we're just really thankful for you. Thanks for being here. Wow, what a bio. Uh, <laughs> I was like, who's that guy? I can't wait to hear him talk. Um, no, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that, Sarah. Really happy to be here and, and happy to be uh, working alongside HSABC to um, ensure that we're, everybody's getting equal access to the, to the important information. And I think that's probably one, been one of the biggest challenges for all of us out there is, is trying to manage the onslaught of new information, recommendations, contradicting information, policy changes, uh, almost on an hour-to-hour basis. And so um, instead of spending any more time talking about myself, I just want to uh, throw a shout out to each and every one of you who are on the other end of the line the folks with lived and living experience who are shouldering so much more um, of the of the dual healthcare crises that is COVID-19 and overdose, uh, the frontline workers, the managers. I can't believe that there's so many managers on the call today. That's both fantastic and terrifying. Who's running the show without you guys? Um, thank you for having me, and and I look forward to going through this with you today. Before we do get started, I would like to recognize that colonization and the institutional oppressors that continue to permeate in our society have dramatically impacted Indigenous people who call this land home. The host of disproportionate impacts towards Indigenous peoples are far-reaching and span generations. Yesterday, I had a really great opportunity to co-present on the recent Provincial Public Safety Order regarding decampment of homeless encampments in Topaz, Pandora, and Oppenheimer Park. The entire process that we're seeing unfold for folks experiencing homelessness is not that far off from previous colonization activities. Fencing people in, paying them to move into centralized locations, asking them to only carry what they can fill in two plastic totes, asking them to trust you when they have no good reason to do so. For many, this brings up generational trauma, this brings up the, the history of colonization, and so it's really, really stressful for folks. And I left that presentation feeling pretty good until this morning, I was kind of stopped dead in my tracks when I saw the first image of the shelters that they were creating at the Save On Foods Arena here in Victoria. If you've had a chance, it's a Times Columnist article. I, I recommend you have a look at it. I have to say, I've seen better facilitated, better structured, better care available in some of Canada's prisons. And so it reminds me yet again that we really need to make sure that we are always advocating for our clients. We always need to be putting our people first because this is not how housing really looks. And a land acknowledgement isn't enough to even remotely recognize or, or even um, eliminate some of those structural and historical barriers that have been erected through colonization. But it is a small step to committing to a relationship of humility and collaboration. So it's with that spirit today that I acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen peoples on whose traditional territory I stand on today, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanish peoples whose historical relationship with the land continue to this day. So as we've moved through this um, webinar process, doing weekly check-ins, um, doing 101s with people and some more specialized topics, 
Um, I recall this one um, one session that we did, and Sarah, when you said two and a half months, I can't believe that this is how long it's been going on for because I feel like I've been in a bit of a time warp. But one of the weeks, Sarah had this amazing idea that we just pause for a moment and take a collective breath and do a check-in. I know for a fact that the last two months have worn me down in several respects. Finding people deceased in their tents, responding to countless overdoses, even just trying to make sense of the ever-changing policies and directions from our decision makers. It is hard, and it's okay to feel those challenges. For many of us, we're starting to acknowledge that the collateral impacts of COVID have been more harmful to ourselves and to the population that we serve than COVID itself. It's okay to feel like you're struggling a little bit. Last, mm, I'd say three days ago, I ran into a a community member who had gotten into uh, detox and the expectation was that from detox, that person would be housed because we are in a pandemic. And then I saw this person back at the camp and I asked them, like, what, what are you doing here? What, what happened? And they said, um, I was discharged back to the camps because I was told this was my best chance to make sure I didn't slip, slip through the cracks. And I just thought, holy shit, this camp is the cracks. Like this is you've already slipped back into it. And and to me, that was a real just moment of sinking in how how terrible this crisis has been on the folks that we're trying to help uh, and how oppressive the systems that we unintentionally create for people when we're trying to respond to such a public health uh, crisis. So I do want to take the opportunity to check in with each of you and I want to take just a moment to let you let you type into the chat um, how you're doing, what's the biggest struggle that you're currently dealing with and and how are you managing things? actually have a little poll that I put together. A lot of it reflects sort of the provincial health orders, but um, you can just type into the chat section as well to talk about how you're feeling. If you just need uh, an anonymous place to say what's on your mind, um, this is the place. I'm not going to read them out, but um, if you just need to put that somewhere, you're welcome to put it here. I know I've been... While I do that, how are you doing, Sarah? Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. I, it's a weird time because we've been all working so hard to protect people. And now there's sort of inklings of uh, things changing again, which for me personally is quite terrifying because, you know, it's like we put all this effort into keeping people safe and getting PPE and, and you know, doing social distancing. And now they're talking about casually well, not they're not talking casually, but it just feels weird to be thinking about things going back to uh, being open again. Or, um, yeah, so that's, yeah, I'm finding that hard to put together in my mind. But it just reflects that we have been in an emergency and we've all been working really hard with complex information, complex challenges. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like next. So I'm feeling a little uncertain, a little anxious, for sure. I know another thing that I struggled with was um, watching all of these protests to end the lockdown and the and the kind of passive resistance to some of the public health protocols that are out there. Um, I recall standing on the bleachers at, at Topaz, and on one side, I could see this, this massive encampment that was created as a response to a public health crisis. 
And if I look to my right, the lower field, there's a group of young men playing ultimate frisbee. Yeah. I thought like, what's what's going on? And you know, like I, I yelled at them, go home. Like, <laughs> like an angry old man. But I was like, what? How is there such a disconnect in in our priorities right now that? We have people in such dismay right now on one side and people who are defying public health orders because they need to play ultimate frisbee. Yeah, there's a lot of um, juxtaposition that just kind of messes with your mind. And people are talking about the challenges of frontline, just helping their clients and finding that there's less resources right now. Um and, and someone in particular saying that there was more fair market housing available. And now, you know, it's harder for everybody to find housing, which then has the trickle effect of impacting those that find it more difficult to get secure housing. So, yeah, lots of lots of challenges. Hey, um, just putting the results of this poll up. I know some of you weren't able to access it. So sorry about that tech thing. Um, that's pretty split pretty evenly. Hey, Corey. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say um, this is. This is pretty reflective of, of of the issues that we've been seeing on the on the ground level, um, and and so I can totally uh, empathize with with each and every one of you who filled out this poll. That it's been a, a just a mix of of factors that have really created this moral distress that a lot of us are feeling right now. And and I thank you for taking the time to share. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a lot to talk about today and only a short amount of time to do it. Uh, Today, due to high demand, we are completing a recap of all things COVID-19 and homelessness in British Columbia. Those of you who have attended every session know that there are pieces that we always cover, like a recap of COVID, uh, followed by pieces that change depending on emerging trends and issues. Today, we're going to try and summarize and build on each of the previous five sessions. I think it's five, right, Sarah, that we completed? We have. We also strive to keep you up to date on resources, handouts, infographics. Uh, it dawned on us last week that with all of the COVID saturation of resources, that a guide to these resources might actually be helpful. Um, so as Sarah alluded to, there is an HSABC resource list um, in the handouts, and that provides links to some of the other handouts we provided over the previous five weeks, as well as important phone numbers for advocating for safe supply, important phone numbers for your local public health authority. As always, if there's something that you're looking for that you don't see out there or that you haven't been able to access, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sarah or myself Um, because it's possible that we can put together something for you to best meet your needs. Okay, so COVID obviously shines an uncomfortable light on the health and social inequities that we have in our country. Um, Diminished access to services, increases in overdose deaths, increases in deaths of despair. What does that mean? Well, it means that social connection, housing, and other protective mechanisms are a matter of privilege. Uh, It also means that housing is a human right, plain and simple. We need to take hard lessons we learned from COVID and make sure that people are never put in this position again. I always earmark some of the statements from our national and global leaders in this crisis because I like to see those um, isms that they always say, those colloquialisms, leave nobody behind, we're all in this together. Um, And I just like to hold on to them because those of us who are working on the front lines know that that's not entirely true. 
Uh, and when you see the disproportionate impact that COVID has played on um, newcomer Canadians, on people in long-term care facilities, um, people who are elderly or immune compromised, you know that our system currently is not set up to support people who are most vulnerable and marginalized during a crisis. We received some really timely documentation uh, on April 30th, and this relates specifically to homeless encampments and the rights and protections of people who are in homeless encampments. This is one of the documents that we have shared um, through our HSABC website. And it's really timely because it talks specifically about the protocol for decampments. It talks specifically about what the responsibility of the government is to support people who are in encampments. If you have a chance to read it, I really encourage you to do so. Um, yesterday, as I alluded to, we did a webinar specifically about the public safety order and decampments. Uh, it was really great to have leadership from, from PHS there. It was really great to have Elaine Gosvick there from LA Housing um, and to talk about the current process and what we need to do in order to make it better for people. Obviously, we've seen a lot of harms created out of these encampments. Um, and this webinar certainly isn't all about these encampments, but it's important to acknowledge the fact that um, we do a lot of talk about how we can't criminalize people who are homeless, and yet somehow in this public health crisis, we've managed to really put people in a box and, and to make them feel like they have no other options. And these are just some of the images that have been pulled from mainstream media in response to homelessness during a public health crisis. Obviously, one of the biggest issues when it comes to overdose, which is the first crisis we were in, um, is that isolation means increased risk. And we've seen that already take place here in Victoria. We've seen it already take place in Vancouver, that these public health guidelines don't always reflect the realities of people who are marginalized, people who are um, experiencing poverty or homelessness or precarious housing. And so it's really important that we acknowledge that the systems we create sometimes increase harms. We'll talk a little bit now about um, what COVID is. Many of you are probably aware of this, but it's important not to make assumptions. Uh, I previously put this presentation together last week, and so I had last week's numbers up there, and I wanted to know how much they would change. And I definitely had to update it right before this presentation because the numbers are still rising at quite an incredible rate. In Canada, we now have 60,772 confirmed cases, um, and BC has actually been left relatively unscathed. Um, compared to some of the other provinces, which is good news for us. Um, I recall hearing Dr. Danielle Ben-Smith talk about how we've actually just been lucky in this crisis so far, um, that we haven't seen the same numbers that some of the other provinces have seen. COVID-19 is a large family of viruses found mostly in animals. This particular strain is a zoonotic virus, which means it mutated and went from animal to human. The last zoonotic virus that we saw in a pandemic was Ebola, so you know that this is certainly something that's very serious. It does cause a range of symptoms from common cold to more severe disease, such as severe acute respiratory syndrome. The top three symptoms of COVID-19 are fever, which is greater than 38 degrees Celsius, a cough, which is usually dry, and shortness of breath. Those symptoms can appear somewhere between two and 14 days after exposure. 
When we talk about social distancing, that means six feet or two meters. And it's really important that we try to apply this to our local context. What does that actually mean and look like in a shelter setting? Because that's very different than what we're used to. COVID-19 is still spread by droplets. And what that means is it can be transmitted if someone coughs or sneezes on you. It can be transmitted if someone coughs or sneezes into their hands, touches you, and then you touch your face. Or it can occur if someone coughs or sneezes onto a surface, and it can live on a surface for up to 12 to 24 hours, and those are called fomites. If you touch that surface, then touch your face, that can be a mechanism that the virus can be transmitted. There was a lot of confusion about airborne versus droplet, and we'll try to debunk some of those myths, but the World Health Organization has stated flat out that COVID-19 is a droplet infection. There are some instances where it can be aerosolized, uh, those typically occur in overdose prevention or healthcare settings if people need to be intubated or if they need chest compressions um, or if we are going to use a bag valve mask. Those are instances in which COVID can be aerosolized. But for the majority of the time, it is a droplet infection. How do you know if you're sick? Well, when you read a graph like this, um, it gets a little confusing. I know I get seasonal allergies and every time I sneeze, I'm like, it's not COVID uh, yelling at people. Um, and a lot of people may have experienced this. I've been swapped three times for all of you who want verification. Each time has been a really unpleasant experience. And those of you who have had been swapped can probably empathize that it's not a great time that you would just line up willingly to do. So when you look at this, you think, how am I actually supposed to know the difference between a common cold and COVID or flu and the common cold? You don't need to be a clinician. You don't need to be a virologist in order to determine if someone has COVID. The top three symptoms that you're looking for, again, are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If anybody is exhibiting those symptoms, they need to be tested and they need to be isolated. But what do you do if you're sick? I seem to have lost control of the PowerPoint. There we go. If you have symptoms like fever, cough, or difficulty breathing, or you've traveled outside of Canada or been exposed to someone who has COVID-19, you need to get tested. Um, they used to advise you to call 811, but the best number now to call is 1-888-COVID-19, 1-888-COVID-19. You can also take the online COVID assessment tool, which all of these resources have been included in that resource list that Sarah has been so generous to put together. Uh, so you can call those lines or you can do the self-assessment and it'll guide you with what you need to do. If you need to go to a clinic for some reason, uh, you need to make sure that you avoid emergency departments at all costs. You have a higher likelihood of contracting something in the emergency department than you do of getting the help that you need at this point in time. Uh, and they really should be dedicated explicitly for emergencies. Wear a mask and inform the clinic prior to arriving. Um, so that they can take the necessary precautions. It could be that they have folks in their waiting room who are immune compromised, and they need to make sure that they don't end up being just another link in the infection chain. So we can understand the theory, but it's really important to apply that theory to our actual local context, to the places that we work. So let's say that you're working uh, and you're working on outreach at... Oppenheimer camp, and you identify that somebody is symptomatic. They have a fever, they have a new onset of a cough. It's different from their regular cough. What are the next steps that you need to take? 
Well, in Vancouver, they have the COVID outreach team and they have the COVID assessment team. And those numbers are made available through handouts that have been provided previously in this webinar. You want to make sure that you call them. You want to make sure that you support the individual to shelter in place until a test can be completed. And what that means is getting really creative. In Topaz Park, what we would do is we would identify someone who is symptomatic. We would give them a mask. We would ask them to stay in their tent. We would do an assessment and call the physician to see if this person could be put on safe supply so they didn't have to acquire their substances somewhere else. We made sure we had their meals delivered. We had testing through a mobile testing clinic come and swab them. And until we had the results, we had to make sure that we continued to support them to isolate um, because at the time we didn't have hotel rooms available to get people into. Now, of course, the ideal scenario would be get them would be getting them to isolate into a hotel, um, provided those are actually available. These are some of the do's and don'ts of um, making sure that you're protecting yourself during the global pandemic. So, of course, we talk frequently about what are the most effective ways to protect yourself from COVID-19. Hand washing remains one of the most effective prevention strategies. Uh, it's said that proper, effective, and routine hand washing can decrease COVID transmission by up to 40%. Soap and water is best. And the reason why soap and water is best because uh, COVID-19 is essentially a ball of RNA wrapped in proteins and it's held together by grease. When you use soap, soap breaks down the grease and the entire virus falls apart. If you don't have access to soap and water, then hand sanitizer is your next best option, but it needs to be at least 60% alcohol in order to be effective. Hand washing is always more effective because you can get all the soap suds into all of the various nooks and crannies in your hands. When people use hand sanitizer, and I see it every single day, they do a quick pump, they rub the palms of their hands together, and then it's done. Um, and that really is not an effective mechanism for washing your hands or for disinfecting your hands because there's many other spots that can harbor um, the viral particles. If you are sick, if you have symptoms, you need to make sure you are wearing a mask. The new recommendations essentially tell us if you can't maintain social distancing, so if you can't maintain a six-foot distance or two meters, you should be wearing a mask. And the reason for that is, is because they found that quite a few people can be asymptomatic carriers of the virus, that you can transmit the virus to another person before you acquire symptoms, if you have mild symptoms, or maybe even if you don't have symptoms at all. So if you cannot maintain social distancing, uh, the recommendations from our local public health authority is that you should be wearing a mask. And of course, making sure you cover your mouth and your nose while you're coughing is one of the most important things. Uh, don't do it like the person in this image, cough into your elbow, sneeze into your elbow. Uh, we in nursing call it the vampire technique. Some of the don'ts, don't wear multiple masks. Uh, that will actually increase your risk. And we'll cover a little bit more about mask usage because there definitely has been some of the most controversy around masks um, to date, but wearing multiple masks will actually create a moisture barrier and it will increase your risk of acquiring the infection. And of course, don't take antibiotics. Um, antibiotics are for bacteria. COVID is a virus. Um, all you're doing if you're taking antibiotics is you're potentially increasing your risk because you can clear out all of the good flora, um, all of the good bacteria that you have, um, or potentially creating a more bacteria uh, antibiotic resistant organism if it is a bacterial infection. And Corey, I know that you're probably going to talk a little bit more about this. I just wanted to put this question up now, and that is people are asking about 
the process of getting someone into a hotel room to isolate, like how you actually go through that. So I just wanted you to tuck that away and we can talk about that um, at the appropriate time. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if people have questions throughout this webinar, I'm comfortable fielding them as we go. Um, the, the answer to that question about how do we get people into hotels is very convoluted. Um, the ideal process would be that you would contact your local BC housing representative. Um, and we have provided those numbers for people in order to contact. They are the ones who are responsible for getting people into housing. Um, so that would be your first bet. However, in reality, I've had more success um, contacting the COVID outreach and assessment teams uh, and making use of the health authority channels to get people into housing that they need in a more timely manner. And so what I have to say is that it requires some advocacy and it requires some problem solving. Um, I call everybody until somebody says, yes, I have a space for this person. Mm -hmm. um, and it's complicated because it also is dependent on where you are, are are locally situated um, because the resource numbers for us here in Victoria are not the same as the resource numbers available in Nanaimo or Vancouver or Kelowna. Um, so familiarize yourself with those numbers and create your own pathway so that when you encounter someone who needs to be housed, you can go down that list of phone numbers until you get someone who can actually get that person to a safer place. Yeah, good. Thank you. And the, we've got a list of all of the health authority numbers in that um, resource list. Uh, section, or you can also get in touch with us and we'll help connect you. So it's really important too to talk um, a little bit more thoroughly about putting on a mask, when's the right time to use a mask. Um, so at present, the recommendations from the BC Centre for Disease Control is that medical masks and N95 masks are still to be prioritized for people who are working in healthcare settings that the ideal scenario is that if you can maintain social distancing, you wouldn't need to wear a mask. They haven't quite committed to use of cloth masks. Uh, and that's because the evidence is a little bit um, gray when it comes to their efficacy. What they say is that if you're going to use a cloth mask, it should be because you have symptoms or someone you know has symptoms and you need to create a physical barrier. So if they cough or sneeze, it goes into the cloth mask. But they really want to highlight that it's important when you're wearing a mask that you are at increased risk for touching your face. Many people have a false sense of security. I see it all the time when I'm talking to people um, at Topaz. We do these um, uh, service provider huddles and I see everyone in these large circles. And by the end of the huddle, I've told at least five people, don't put your mask on your forehead. Don't pull your mask below your nose. Stop <laughs> touching your face because if you're wearing a mask, you have a high likelihood that you want to play with the bridge of your nose. You have a high likelihood that you're going to uh, pull it down by the middle so that you can talk to someone. Uh, every time you touch your face, that's when transmission occurs. And so if you're going to wear a mask, really be mindful of the amount of times you're touching your face. Uh, you there on the webinar touching your face right now, I see you uh, because we're all <laughs> do it, especially when we're not paying attention. There is a proper way to um, put on a mask and to take off a mask. Um, and we're going to talk specifically about what happens when you need to do it in rapid succession. Um, but essentially, you always want to be putting it on and taking it off by the ear loops. And you always want to be pull, uh, putting on, um, sorry, you always want to be doing some thorough hand hygiene prior to putting them on. Uh, you want the cleanest possible hands before you put a mask on. 
we talk a lot about flattening the curve. And because this is a recap, I wanted to revisit this concept. Um, flattening the curve essentially means what we're trying to do is delay the amount of time between one transmission to another. And we do that through engaging in protective mechanisms like social distancing, self-isolation, frequent hand washing, appropriate use of masks. These are all things that we do in order to reduce the amount of time or lengthen the amount of time between one infection and another. And when we can delay that infection period, what we do is we actually decrease the amount of cases that people will acquire. And we end up with the lazy kitty, where there's intervals, uh, the amount of time where, where one infection goes to another is slower. And so we see less of a surge in cases uh, and more of a prolonged decrease amount of cases. And that's kind of the instance that we're seeing in British Columbia right now. We've done a really great job of flattening the curve. Uh, part of it was because we were lucky. Our spring break starts at a different time than the rest of the country. And so we didn't have as many people returning from international travel as other provinces. But part of it is that we've been really thorough uh, and quick to engage in these protective mechanisms. The risk now is complacency. Because we haven't seen this virus hit our population, we haven't seen this virus take hold of our province in the same way that other countries have been hit. We certainly aren't New York City, we certainly aren't Spain or Italy, uh, or now Russia where cases are surging. Um, and so that creates a little bit of a false sense of security where we think that this isn't going to impact us as, in a very negative way. And recent reports from the World Health Organization have shown that the second wave of this virus may, also, may actually be bigger than the first wave. Uh, so it's really important that we remain vigilant. It's really important that we maintain these precautions um, because it can happen anytime. Where I was working prior to coming back to British Columbia was a small town called Brooks, Alberta. Some of you may have heard of it because they've been in the news quite a bit. Um, in southern Alberta, the second highest amount of cases um, for COVID-19 is Medicine Hat with 33 positive cases. The highest is Brooks, a small town with a population of 10,000, and they have over 900 positive cases now. They have zero for a long time. And then all it took was one and another and some poor working conditions and some poor planning, um, not on the fault of the healthcare team. And all of a sudden they had a massive surge of cases. And so we need to use those reminders to say, like, this could happen anytime for us. In Toronto, they've had over 11 shelters with positive cases. Last count was well over 90 positive cases amongst the homeless population. It can happen. In Calgary, the drop-in center now has positive cases. The Alpha House um, has positive cases. So it can still happen. And we need to really make sure that we're on guard for it. Some of the realities of social inequities in times of, a, of an outbreak, and all of you can likely empathize with this, is that it's really hard to get people access to basic needs. Things that we take for granted are not things that are readily available for the population that we serve. It took seven days to get soap and water on Pandora and Topaz. We had over 225 tents in Topaz, and it took seven days to get people an opportunity to wash their hands on a regular basis. It took 17 days to get them access to a shower. We still do not have access to laundry services. And this is during a global pandemic. And so if COVID-19 does anything, it's going to crack open our social and health systems and show us where our vulnerabilities exist. And this is definitely one of those places. 
So how do we actually put these recommendations into action? Um, many of you are still working in settings where shelters are still operating, but they're operating at a decreased capacity and you're struggling with the demand, the need for sheltering versus the need to maintain social distancing. And so it's really important that if your shelter is still running, if you're still operating services where you have large crowds of people, that you do everything you can in order to promote social distancing. That could mean putting tape on the floor so that you can remind people just how far six feet or two meters is. It means that when everyone comes into the comes into the shelter or comes into your drop-in center, that you're offering them an opportunity to wash their hands. And being that really annoying person, hey, man, how are you doing? Have you washed your hands lately? And just going through that process every single time you talk to someone, making sure that you're using communication to tell them this is to protect you. This is to make sure that I can help keep you safe. Because right now they feel like they're not being treated with human rights. They're not being treated with compassion. They're being treated as a potential risk factor. And you can see that in this image I've posted here in this um, PowerPoint slide is that the ways we treat homeless individuals during a pandemic is really reflective of the stigma that still exists in healthcare, the stigma that still exists in social care. Um, this is from Nevada, I believe, and their response to homelessness during a pandemic is to paint lines on a parking lot and let people sleep on the pavement. So, we started to recognize that there was a lot of issues in our current approach. Um, and so this is where I could take off my educator hat and put on my advocacy hat, that um, we all have a responsibility to not be okay with the status quo. And so a group of advocates and myself, peer run agencies, uh, academics, local leaders put together the six, six urgent action items to address inequitable COVID-19 responses for people experiencing homelessness. We are asking for a public health response to homelessness and COVID-19. Uh, we're asking for people to be able to mobilize housing supply and offer to those in need if they want it, to support people who want to shelter in place, to make sure that people who go into hotels, which are more isolated environments, that they have the opportunity for safe supply first because we're at an increased risk for overdose as well, to make sure we have low barrier and non-discriminatory health care and testing, to push for decriminalization of survival-based activities, and that includes personal possession of substances. And above all else, to make sure that we're always framing things through a human rights and lived experience lens. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily what we got. What we got was a public safety order. And on May 9th, this public safety order is meant to be enacted where decampments are to occur. And it's framed very much in an enforcement lens, which is quite concerning. And so this is my reminder to every one of you on May 9th to be there for your people and to be advocates for your folks, because it's very likely that this is going to get uglier before it gets better. We'll move on a little bit now to talk about specific shelter context. Um, you can apply this to drop-in settings, shelters. You can apply this to hotel settings if you're work is now shifting gears and you're going to be in the hotel setting now. This section is entirely derived from BC Housing and the reason why I do that is it's important that we're all singing from the same songbook, that we're all using the same language and we're applying the same principles and practices. Prevention is still something that we are doing and that sounds a bit odd because we're in the middle of this crisis, but it's an evolving crisis. Now as people are being moved into hotels, we need to prevent, for the, prevent the potential harms that can occur in those locations. 
we need to make sure that we have response planning available if an outbreak is to incur in those locations. Uh, I would recommend that people take a look at the Vancouver Coastal Health Pandemic Response Checklist. Uh, it is dated back to 2006, but the information is still highly relevant and it's still very good uh, checklist that you can use to make sure you have everything in place in order to support people who are at increased risk uh, for negative health consequences from COVID-19. Hey, Corey, of course, I, I just yep. wanted to clarify. Um, so the May 9th deadline, is that the public safety order that applies specifically to Oppenheimer, Topaz and Pandora? Or is it um, does that apply to clearing people out of camps across the province? So the public safety order is specifically framed for Oppenheimer, Topaz, and Pandora encampments. Um, however, what we've started to see is that bylaw and enforcement are going to other encampments and they're telling people to move to Oppenheimer, Pandora, or Topaz um, okay. with, with the hopes that they can move there and then get access to housing. So while it's only specific to those three locations, it's also, from a broader standpoint, impacts other smaller encampments around those areas. Right. Yeah. So there's that effect of um, they're moving people out of other smaller encampments in order to ostensibly access housing, but really to, to use it as a mechanism to clear camps. Yes, that would be correct. And if anybody's on Twitter, I recommend you all start following um, Humans at Beacon Hill, which is a group of people who are camping at Beacon Hill Park in Victoria, um, who are documenting their experience with the decampment process, who are uh, you know, outlining their concerns, uh, and who are really trying to promote the voice of people who are actually impacted by our decisions. Um, whenever we're doing things like this, we always you know, echo the statements that we need to make sure that we're um, considering the voices of people with lived and living experience, but we still often engage in tokenism and we still often ignore those voices, uh, especially when they're something that's inconvenient to us. Mm -hmm. Next, we'll talk a little bit about screening, quarantining and social distancing. Um, we've been Fortunate to say that um, there's been some changes in testing priority. Uh, there was once a time when um, people who were experiencing homelessness, the service providers who were working with people who were experiencing homelessness, um, that they weren't a priority for testing. But that is no longer the case. Um, a public health order was issued outlining that people who are experiencing homelessness are a priority for testing. So now the process has become much easier. It used to be that I would have to call public health and I would have to rationalize why this person needed testing and why they couldn't self-isolate. Now the testing order can be done through a local physician. Uh, and it's based specifically on those risk factors that if people who are homeless um, come into contact with COVID-19, they are at a greater risk. Therefore, we must be able to test them so that we can do good contact tracing and we can make sure we can slow the rate of infection. It is important to know that there is a significant difference between cleaning and disinfecting and that there's a proper way to do both. As I've said, hand washing using um, uh, soap and water or hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol is the best way to clean your hands. If you're going to be cleaning a surface, then you need to make sure that you're using either diluted bleach or an alcohol solution with at least 70% alcohol. You need to make sure that you're doing that frequently on all of the common touch surfaces. 
And what that means is if there's a bathroom that people are still using, and I never tell people to close your bathrooms down because our folks who are experiencing um, these oppressors, these institutional problems, they have decreased access to washrooms and, and washroom access really is a basic human right. But if you do have open bathrooms, you need to make sure you're cleaning them frequently. Uh, and you can't just use the spray and wipe technique. You can't spray the bleach, wipe it down and walk away and think that that's an appropriate way to clean surfaces or disinfect surfaces. The proper way to do that is to first clean the area with soap and water, then apply disinfectant, let it sit for five to 10 minutes, and then you can wipe it afterwards. And that's how you actually kill the virus when it's um, alive on a surface in the form of a fomite. But just to clarify, um, uh, there's a discrepancy between the percentages. So hand sanitizer needs to be at least 60%, but surface sanitizer should be at least 70%? That is correct, yes. Okay. So those are sort of minimum limits. Yeah. And those have been minimum limits outlined by uh, the World Health Organization and the BC CDC. Um, the reason why, you know, 70% is for surfaces versus 60% on your hands. It's not something that I, I have readily available for me. Um, however, that is the recommendations that our public health authorities have given us. That's great. Thank you, Corey. And just a quick tech note. Um, if you want to just leave your mic on, because uh, I can hear the clicking of it on and off, that would be great. Okay, I'll do that. Um, I have kids yelling in the background. Oh, so well, that's trying to disrupt the amount of times that you had to hear my children screaming up and down the hallways. That is um, OK. But, that, that is understandable. Oh. <laughs> um, so what do you do if you suspect that someone has COVID-19? Well, the simplest thing is to identify, isolate and then call BC, call public health uh, and BC housing so that you can get them properly isolated. Uh, so you want to identify it by going through those screening tools. Um, do they have a fever? Do you have a thermometer on hand that you can do regular temperature checks, which is something that most facilities are trying to do now? Um, and then can you isolate that individual within your local context? So if it's a shelter setting, uh, it's important to make sure you have a separate space for people who are symptomatic. Um, or perhaps making sure that even your, your beds or your floor mats are six feet apart from each other and that people are lined up head to toe uh, so that if they do cough or sneeze, that they'll be able to not go directly into somebody's face. If somebody's symptomatic, make sure that they're able to wear a mask and support them in doing that. Remind them to do frequent hand washing, have their meals delivered to them. Everything you can do to support that individual to shelter in place will reduce the likelihood that somebody else will contract the virus. Ideally, you live in a, a local area where there's a system in place that you can identify this individual, contact BC Housing, and they can be isolated somewhere other than a common space like a shelter or a drop-in setting. Um, but from experience, that's not always available, and so you do need to get a little bit creative in your process. It's really important that we're communicating to people on a regular basis, and this really doesn't happen well enough at this point in time. Um, people are really scared and, and they're really concerned because they've had previous instances where their rights have been infringed on. They've experienced these things before um, and, and they're starting to feel that way again. Everywhere they go, people are saying, you can't come in here, stand back. Um, I was at a 
um, at a function where people were doing hot suppers for people who are homeless. And there was someone walking up and down the line yelling at people, six feet back, you need to get back. If you can't get back, you're not going to get fed. And all of these things bring up traumas that people have experienced in the past. When we do tent checks at the parks, I have people tell me that they are reminded of what it was like when they were in jail because people are shining flashlights into their tent at the middle of the night and checking to see if they're still breathing. And all of this just further dehumanizes people. And so really lean into the relationships you have with folks and sit down and explore those feelings and, and, and try to frame it in the fact that, you know, I acknowledge that this is a really horrible time for you. And this is really unfortunate what's happening. I'm doing my best to support you. And it's, it's because I care about you. The same thing goes if you're wearing a mask. Remind people that you're not wearing the mask to protect yourself. You're wearing a mask to protect others from you because you could be an asymptomatic carrier. Always frame it in the care that you have for people because sometimes that gets forgotten. Public health can be really authoritarian when it comes to uh, pandemics and outbreaks. And so we really need to make sure that while we're pushing people for physical distancing, we remain socially connected with them. Yeah, and Aileen Gosvik, who works in L.A. with family housing, was talking about this yesterday. Um, we really need to lean into our relationships with people at this point in time because they do trust us more than they trust uh, public health officials. Or And someone actually brought up a good point here. It's very difficult to connect with people who have anxiety or paranoia um, and convince them that... Um, that COVID is a threat and that they need to do all of these protocols because they might already have existing trust issues from trauma, or they might have some paranoia around authority or, um, you know, a, a mental health issue that's preventing them from believing you or trusting you. So I just want to name that and recognize that, that in this time in particular, um, the more signs we put up, <laughs> I know as a manager, uh, I, I was in love with signs for a long time, but it's it's about leaning into those personal connections and relationships with our clients. Uh, it's hard work to do that. Um, it requires a lot of time and effort, but that's the way that we'll be able to help protect people and get the information out there in a way that's effective. Yeah, I mean, hit the nail on the head. And while I can outline for you, each and every one of you, the ideals, the, the, the intent to, to make sure that we're always applying a humanistic lens to our approach, there are times when it just really sucks for people. Uh, it, as, as the people impacted by these, um, by these policies, by these uh, measures, but also for care providers. I, I know a week ago, there was a, an individual who was just crying and I, I said, what's wrong? And, and she actually said to me, like, I, I just want to hug someone. I, I don't have COVID, but I'm being treated like, like I'm some carrier. And, and it's heartbreaking to see that our folks who are already experiencing social disconnection are, are seen on a magnitude that, that we can't really empathize with, that we don't know what it's like to be them. And so do your best. Do everything you can to try and spend time with people. And I acknowledge that it's difficult because you're all busy, you're all overworked, you're all at maximum capacity, but that social connection goes a long way and, and it leads to other outcomes that are positive for yourself and for the clients that we serve. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when it comes to responding to an overdose, uh, we have all of these protocols and we'll talk about the best way to do that. Um, but it's important to talk about what that really looks like in uh, an overdose situation right now uh, and how to keep yourself safe and how to make sure that you're also responding in a timely manner. And so we'll talk about what the regular protocol is, but let's say that you're out working in one of the encampments uh, and somebody overdoses in the public washrooms. How are you going to run to that public washroom, apply your PPE, do your proper hand hygiene, and provide adequate care to the person who's overdosing without assuming so much risk that you potentially get yourself sick? It's an incredibly challenging thing to do, and I acknowledge that. I remember um, I was on a phone call in my car outside of one of the encampments, and someone banged on my window and said, there's an overdose in the public washroom. And I'm running to the public washrooms while I'm applying hand sanitizer and putting on my mask, my face, my eye protection and my gloves. And I walk into the bathroom and this person is lurched over in the sink with the water still running. So by the time I get them out of there, I'm covered in the water that this person was was in. And I'm thinking, like, how is this actually going to be possible? So we need to talk about how it actually is possible, because it is it's just really difficult and it produces some anxieties. In order to properly respond to an overdose, if you're working in an OPS, a supervised consumption service, but also if you're working in some of those other low threshold services like shelters or, or homeless encampments, you need to make sure that you're protecting yourself. And so medical masks should be on in these instances, uh, provided that you can't guarantee six feet of, of separation from someone, you should be wearing one at all times. Um, and you can wear the same mask throughout the whole shift um, but it's really important to make sure that you change it if it gets soiled or wet. Otherwise, it's not an effective barrier anymore. There is an order of operations to putting on your PPE. The first thing that you always do is hand hygiene. The next thing that you do is you apply the mask, then the eye protection, then your gloves. When you're taking these off, you do things in reverse order. You take off your gloves, you perform hand hygiene, then you take off your eye protection and the last thing you take off is your mask. And the reason for that is because you always want the cleanest possible hands when you're touching your nose or mouth because those are the vectors in which you will transmit the virus and you will acquire the virus. All staff in contact with participants should be wearing their PPE. There's new recommendations from the BC Center for Disease Control that include wearing gowns uh, for every overdose response. I can tell you that that is incredibly challenging to do. Um, to put on the gown on top of all of those things because time is precious in an overdose and you want to make sure that you're supporting someone as best as you can. If you're going to give respirations the safest, not the safe way, but the safest way to perform respirations is through your take-home naloxone kit face shield. The reason for that is, is because it has a one-way valve mask in it. Uh, so what you breathe in doesn't come back into your lungs and it has an impervious barrier that can go over the remainder of the individual's face. I recommend everyone goes through with their staff how to properly use these, how to get a seal, how to get the proper patent airway like I showed in the previous slide, because for many of us, we're used to using something called a pocket valve mask or a bag valve mask. If you're using one of those, those are actually considered an aerosolizing generating medical procedure now. And what that means is uh, your regular simple mask, your procedural mask and your eye protection no longer are suitable in protecting you against COVID-19. 
when the virus is aerosolized, that means it's airborne. And so the BCCDC recommendations are to not use pocket valve masks or bag valve masks when responding to an overdose at this point in time. You can use supplemental oxygen, but it has to be delivered through a simple mask and it cannot be delivered at any rate higher than six to 10 liters per minute because that is also considered aerosolizing. Naturally, we've seen a disruption in the drug market. And this has been really difficult for people because on top of this pandemic, we're seeing more people overdose. Last Sunday, um, I responded personally to seven overdoses in, in Topaz Park, and it dawned on us to check in with the drug checking folks to see what was actually out there on the street. So just to communicate a little bit of the increased risk period that we're in, uh, there was three substances that were tested that I'll highlight. Uh, the first one was a purple um, down, street down, uh, and it contained 15% fentanyl and a benzodiazepine called alprazolam. Now, for context, um, most pre-pandemic fentanyl concentration averages were around 5%. So this was triple the strength of fentanyl, also with a benzodiazepine mixed in. The next sample was a gold tan substance, and that also contained 15% fentanyl, but it also contained some drugs um, that could potentially cause harms to people that had nothing to do with sedation. And the final substance was a brown sticky tar-like down that was available on the street. And this one contained 20% fentanyl and an animal sedative called xylazine. And xylazine is a drug that's toxic to humans. So this is why we're starting to see such a huge increase in overdoses because we thought that the drug supply would be impacted. We thought the drug supply would be disrupted. We actually thought there would be less fentanyl out there and more benzos, but what we actually saw was more benzos and more fentanyl. This is a great infographic that's available to all of you. This comes from Toronto Street Health OPS, and this is really written by people with lived and living experience who are responding to overdoses right here, right now. It's a four page insert and provides all kinds of practical tips that you might want answers to when it comes to responding to overdose in real time. So some of the tips and tricks that I can give to you, well, we're still telling people to stock up on their supplies, especially if they're going into a hotel. Make sure that they have adequate naloxone. Make sure that they have a safety plan. Um, communicate with whoever's operating the hotels and make sure that there's some kind of system in place that people are getting checked on regularly or that there's an opportunity to have an OPS out of those sites or even something called a virtual OPS where people are phoned if they're gonna use, uh, and then we check on them 50 minutes later, and if they don't respond, then we, we enter their room. Something like that needs to be in place because further isolation in a time of an overdose crisis is definitely equating to increased risks. And we also have safe supply. Uh, and I add a little caveat to that comment because it's not quite where we need it to be right now. A lot of healthcare professionals, public health experts are trying to uh, work with these guidelines in order to make safe supply something more available to people. For those of you who aren't aware of what safe supply is, um, it's an availability of 
a safe alternative to the street drugs that people are taking. So if you use opiates on the street like fentanyl, you can be prescribed Dilaudid or Amesalon. If you use methamphetamines on the streets, you can be prescribed Dexedrin or Ritalin. Um, this is uh, something that we have been recommending for a long time before COVID was a thing. And it's something that we hope can remain in place once COVID is no longer a thing because it is an effective strategy for responding to the overdose crisis as well. It still takes a lot of advocacy uh, and it's not where we need to be. So you as providers, you can work with individuals and you can identify that there's a need for safe supply. You can sit with them and you can contact their primary provider with you with permission. And you can try to advocate for them and let them know like, look, this is the situation that this person is in. Uh, they're at an increased risk for overdose, they're isolated. And here's these new guidelines made specifically to mitigate those risks and to support their ability to shelter in place. If that doesn't work as it hasn't for a lot of people, there is an advocacy line that you can call. It's located at the bottom of this handout. I'm circling around it right now if people can see it, um, but it's also available on the HSABC resource list that Sarah has put together. So thank you. Like I said, this was an information heavy session. So I recognize that there's probably a lot of questions. I encourage you to ask them now, or if you want, you can email me or Sarah uh, and we can try to incorporate it into our next session, or we can just respond to you uh, in whatever way works best for you. We are here for you to make sure that you have all the information that you need. Um, and I'll finish off again by just saying how grateful I am for all of the work that each and every one of you are doing. And of course, I always end my presentation on a slide about how to properly wash your hands, because that is something that we all need regular reminders for. Well, thank you, Corey. I'm just kind of absorbing. It's like a download of everything we've been talking through for the last two months. Um, but it's really good. It's good to be able to kind of put it all in one place and think it through um, from uh, holistic point of view. Um, I know that there's some probably privacy concerns, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about Safe Supply and your stories of doing that. Um, For sure. Yeah, I know you told absolutely. the story last month that you may have gotten in trouble for, but I just wanted you to touch on uh, the alcohol issue as well as talking through maybe a story of how you've helped someone get onto safe supply. Yeah, I mean, it's important to acknowledge that um, people who use alcohol are also becoming some of our forgotten population uh, in this crisis. Uh, we become very centric on, on overdose risk, but folks who are drinking chronically um, are experiencing a disruption in their supply as well. They're not able to make money the same way that they were able to before. They're not able to access the regular um, uh, places that they pick up their, their alcohol from. And the risk for negative health consequences related to alcohol withdrawal are quite high. Um, and so there are managed alcohol programs that are available for people. Some of them are very high barrier and still in the works. And it is a newer concept for uh, British Columbia, though it's not a new concept. It's a newer one that we haven't really been able to properly do yet. So there are those, those ones, those, those medicalized versions that are available and they're happening outside of British Columbia as well. 
but there are also a lot of really great community organizations and community agencies that are providing low barrier managed alcohol programs. And in Victoria, we have a group called the Indigenous Harm Reduction Team, uh, and they meet up with people, they find out what their drinking, uh, what their drinking needs are, uh, and then they deliver a set amount of that alcohol to people on regular basis so that they don't experience um, that life-threatening withdrawal uh, that many people who chronically drink can experience. When it comes to safe supply for illicit substances, uh, that has been definitely a challenge. Um, we've been able to get around 50 people in, in Topaz on safe supply, which is great. But in comparison to the 200 plus people that are there, it still hasn't quite scratched the surface of where we need to be. It really is a case by case basis and it requires a lot of advocacy. And I know there was one time where I received a phone call from uh, a provider in Souk and um, this person said, oh, I'm trying to help this person get onto safe supply, um, but the doctor's not willing to prescribe to them. And that's one of the issues that we've encountered is that um, patients who have providers who don't believe in safe supply or don't want to do safe supply are almost held captive a little bit by their provider. And so I told them like, oh, okay, you should call this BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivor Line and they can help advocate for you. And then they responded by saying, I called that line and they told me to call you. And I was <laughs> like, oh, oh shoot. <laughs> but, then we, but then we got on the phone and it turned out that this provider just wasn't aware. They, they're, a, they're a GP, they're a general practitioner, they're not an addictions um, provider. And so we actually just had to go through the whole process with them. Why would you prescribe stimulants to someone during an overdose and pandemic crisis? What kind of safe supply is available to that person? What's the rationale for doing it? Here are the things that you can consider. And by the end of that conversation, this provider decided that they were going to prescribe safe supply to their client who was in uh, the homeless encampments. And that's really been emblematic of, of all of the safe supply cases that some are simple, some are complicated, but it takes a lot of advocacy and it's being done on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not something that's been demedicalized. It's not something that's available for all quite yet, but it's something that people are actively working on. And we really need to make sure that we're always being advocates for the folks that we work with. And sometimes it gets a little hairy. Um, we, we had one instance where um, the primary provider just refused to, to do that for this person. And so we had to actually fire that provider and get a new prescriber for this person who would do it. And, and it's definitely convoluted and difficult, but it's also definitely worthwhile doing. Yeah, thank you for getting into that. Um, the other thing I was just thinking about, especially because we have so many managers and supervisors on the line, and a lot of them have brought up the, the hardness and responsibility of translating information. And I was just thinking about something we talked about a few weeks ago, which was um, in terms of leadership. And that was making the time, you know, a lot of us are overwhelmed by Zoom and, and information at this point. And one of the really concrete tips that I appreciated and took away was um, it's much more effective if you can. I know there's shift work in that to do a huddle every day. It, you know, it sounds like it's something that you were doing at the park. But as a manager to just um, put the effort into talking directly with your staff 
and just giving them the least they need to know for that day. Um, so it might yeah. not be that you have you have the responsibility to disseminate a lot of information. And sometimes the conditions of your work are changing every day. But one thing that I really appreciated was this idea of just making time for a five minute check in, you know, maybe hold off on the emails. Not everybody uh, accesses their work email or they might not even be reading it at this point and just pull people together, maybe during shift transitions as time allows and just say, hey, this is what we're dealing with today. What do you need to do your job right now? Is there anything that you're confused about? Is there anything you're worried about? How can I help you? Uh, what information do you need today? And oftentimes that can just cut through a lot of the, the volume of what we're seeing right now. So I just wanted to bring yeah, that up. For sure. And, and I think another thing to acknowledge too is that we're seeing a lot of um, work being done through piecemeal. There's a lot of, you know, this agency is doing this part, this agency is doing this part. And to bring all of those folks together who are actively working on that for a daily huddle, just to say, like, what are you doing? What areas are you covering? What are our current issues and emerging trends? Um, it's also a great opportunity to just go through some really quick, simple education pieces that are that are more in-person and hands-on. Uh, we started doing a morning health huddle at the park, and um, during one of the sessions, we just reviewed getting a proper airway while providing breaths through the face shield without making assumptions that anybody there knew or didn't know how to do it. Um, and then I had a couple people come up to me afterwards who I'd assume knew what they were doing and said, thank you very much for going through that because I was actually feeling really rusty and I didn't feel comfortable explaining that to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, all of you on the line are doing incredible work. Um, and all of our suggestions today are just to try to help you and support you. So if you have any feedback for us or things that are working well for you or things you want answers to, uh, we've got some time here for you to talk through that with us. I'm just looking at, um, I've been sending out some handouts to people as the webinar has been going on. Um, a lot of people are asking for the six uh, actions that you mentioned earlier, Corey, and I have a PDF of that, but is there another way that people can access that online and share that? Um, the six urgent actions is a summary of an open letter that was submitted by AVI, Solid, Peers Resource Society, myself, Bernie Polly, um, and Solid Outreach. Um, so if people are looking for that, I can probably, I, if people are looking for more information on that, I can send you, Sarah, I think we put the actual open letter in one of the previous presentations. Yes. Um, but I can resend that to you if you'd like, and then we can send the PDF of the summary and the actual letter, um, to folks who are looking for it. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. So Corey, just reflecting then, um, on this past two months, um, what has helped you to do your job better? <laughs> what are some of the things that you've personally seen success in? Um, I'm just going to go. Oh, there's no questions thing today. Well, we'll just leave up the hand washing then. <laughs> um, what's helped you to do your job? Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think in in all of this, there are strength in numbers. And 
I make sure that I surround myself with people who I can talk to. Like I, there have been no shortage of times where I felt like I've just been screaming into the void. This is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. And it falling on, on deaf ears. And, and I've really taken solace in the fact that there are other people around me who are experiencing these similar situations who are in an unprecedented time and they don't know the answer all the time. And we just check in with each other on a regular basis and we are compassionate to each other. We are understanding when some people are tired and they need a break and some people are raring to go. You have to share the load and you have to make sure that you have people around you who understand what's going on. When I try to talk to my partner about it, you know, she's in a different place. She doesn't see the same things that we do. And so it's not on her to try and empathize and understand what it's like. But I have fellow frontliners. I have other leaders who are working in this crisis. And we just make sure that we're routinely checking in with each other um, and not talking about COVID all the time. Sometimes just talking about the other things that are making life difficult right now. And it's really important. Um, a, as a leader, right now to show some humility. You're, the folks that you work with really appreciate the fact that this, that this has also been a challenging time for you, that this has also been a time where things are difficult, you're not sleeping well, you're struggling, or you're hypervigilant. Show that humility so that people know you're a human and that this is okay to not be okay with what's going on. And on the flip side of it, if you know a leader who's being stoic and who's working really hard and, and seems like they're just going, 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 don't make the assumptions that they're okay. It's often the people who are most quiet who are struggling the most. So just take opportunities to check in with each other and, and to commiserate. We still have a long way to go in this process. And Elaine, on our, on our um, last webinar, really hit the nail on the head when she said, this is just the next phase right now we're going to have people moving into hotels we're going to have different versions of this crisis and it's going to go on for quite a long time and so we really need to make sure that we have those social support networks in place so that we can keep each other strong and that we can keep each other balanced mm -hmm. i'm much better at saying these things than i am at actually practicing them if you want to know like there's times when i uh, early on where I was self-isolating in my garage and I was just like what is happening like this is the worst year ever and and getting phone calls from friends and coworkers at midnight because they're struggling there is some collective relief in knowing that we're all having a hard time right now yeah yeah thank you Corey for those reflections I also was thinking about how just this question of, of paranoia and anxiety and, and conspiracy theory um, it's something we haven't really touched on. Uh, we've been talking a lot about how to help your staff cope. We've talked a little bit about how to help your clients cope in a couple of our webinars. Um, but I do want to touch on that and just say from my own uh, background in terms of teaching mental health first aid, um, if someone is experiencing something that feels like a threat to them, it's real for them. And so it can be frust it can be very frustrating because you're trying to tell them I'm here to help you be safe. Here's why we're doing this so that you can be safe. I want to keep you safe. But what's coming across is they're perceiving a threat to their freedom, to their identity, to their movement and whatever that is. And I think it's important in these times of crisis, especially when everybody is perceiving a threat to really 
lean in again to our connections and our personal conversations with people. Those are hard conversations to have, but if we can communicate the reason that we're doing this is because we care and we're willing to talk it through. Um, and also, um, you know, respect that people are feeling threatened and they might uh, respond in different ways. I know I struggle with anxiety and um, I have had experience with paranoia in the past and it's been very real. It doesn't matter what somebody says to me. It's, it's what's happening to me in the moment. So um, yeah, I just wanted to encourage you. These conversations are hard um, and it's hard to feel like people that you're trying to help aren't wanting you to help them. But just to recognize that um, it's usually has nothing to do with you. It's just because they're feeling threatened. And so they're in that response. They're just trying to stay safe. You're trying to keep them safe. And sometimes those wires get crossed. So I don't know if that's an answer, but it's just something I've been reflecting on and something that was brought up today. And I just want to, you know. Well, the perception of trauma and the perception of stigma are just as damaging as yes. stigma and trauma itself. And, you know, I, I go back to this, this fencing that's happening because it's one of the most um, current examples that we have. I talk to people who are setting up the fences and they say things like, well, we're not caging people in, we're supporting them. And that's kind of the key messaging that you get. And then I spend time talking to the people who are impacted by the camps. And these are the things that they say. I woke up and the fences had all moved. I went to lunch and the fences had moved again. We couldn't find an exit at one point and we feel like we're being caged in. And so it's really important to acknowledge that there's a disconnect between the messaging we're giving people and the realities of how they're feeling mm -hmm. from those different interventions. And sometimes like I've been so busy in a day and then I've you know, done that breeze by, hey, how are you? Which we often do with people, you know, like, Hey, Sarah, how are you? And you, I expect that Sarah is going to say, I'm good, thanks. And then I can move on. But instead, Sarah says, I'm having a really hard time. And I'm like, oh, crap, now I need to sit down and, and, and acknowledge that. I can't just say, okay, great, thanks, and, and walk away. And there's been times in the camps where I do that breeze by, hey, how are you? And someone says, how, how the F do you think I am? I'm living in a park, and I don't know what my future looks like. And I've just had to stop what I'm doing and sit down with that person and say, you know what, you're so right. This is horrible. I'm so sorry that you're in this situation. Is there anything I can do for you right now to make it better? And people honestly really appreciate the humility of the fact that you can just acknowledge that this is very real to them. This is very harmful to them and that you're doing everything you can to support them. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about the story you shared about the person who's just missing being hugged, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, again, uh, just a shout out to managers and supervisors on the line. This is a time where you're doing high engagement with your staff and also staff are feeling anxious. Staff are feeling paranoid. Staff are feeling overwhelmed. And so it, it that actually impacts their ability to take in information. It impacts their ability to adjust to change and it impacts their ability to um, effectively put into practice the policies that are changing. And so again, you know, it's that uh, the heavy lifting of emotional intelligence where we check in with our staff in a way that is humble and real and say, Hey, you know, you know, we, we talked about um, 
this a few weeks ago about staff that are resistant um, or just don't seem like they, they care. And that's usually just a sign of overwhelm and burnout. And it's not yeah, a sign you of... you feel like... Yeah. Okay, sorry, Sarah. No, no, no. I was thinking about you telling me you you'd gone to all this work to put together a safe supply overview handout thing and you gave it to someone in the camp, one of your staff, and they were like, oh, thanks. And they just shoved it in their pocket and walked away. And it's this idea that we see resistance um, in the people that we're leading, um, but it's always important to investigate the reason for that resistance. It doesn't mean we have to be counselors or therapists. It does mean that we have to, you know, just turn on that personal connection because someone's resistance might be fear or paranoia or overwhelm. And it's usually yeah. not thinking that anything is in your control. Yes. You know, like you, you read countless prevention measures. You're told that you need to wear all of this PPE and half of it you don't even have available to you. And you're being told, you know, one day give breaths, the next day only give naloxone, the next day maybe this is, maybe you can use a bag belt, you know, and and so much of it seems out of control that at some point in time people are just like, you know what, nothing I'm going to do is right, so I'm just going to do what I usually do. Yes. And that doesn't mean that they're actually being resistant. It means that they need more support uh, and that we need to make really, like, at times slow things down and, and find out where this fear, where this apprehension and, and ambivalence is coming from. And, and go to the root of the problem to support them. I, I recall a couple of weeks ago seeing someone and they just, they looked like they were really down. It was after we had found those those two folks who had passed away and, and I heard them talking to their manager and they said, you know, I'm just really tired. And their manager responded with, we're all really tired right now. And I just thought like, oh man, like that's the, that's the last thing somebody wants to hear <laughs> when they reach out to someone is we're all really tired right now. Sure, it's true, we're all really tired right now, but we got to have some empathy and we got to have some support because what's really hard for me, what's really stressing my coping skills out might be completely immobilizing to another person or what's really, you know, not that difficult to adapt to for some person uh, might be a huge barrier for me to be able to do my work. And we need to acknowledge that the clients we serve are people and the people we work with are people. And we all have our own baggage that we carry with us and we all have our own fears and those are real. Yeah. And just to kind of wrap up here, I keep coming back to this phrase. It's, it actually comes out of uh, parenting, but it's connection, not perfection. And I think for me personally, I try my best to wash my hands as as according to this poster. You know, I'm trying to observe social distancing. I'm trying to put all the policies into practice. But at the end of the day, the reason we're doing all this stuff is to help other people stay safe. We're, the reason we're doing it is for people both the ones that we love, the ones that we care for, and the ones that we serve. And so for me, thinking about, okay, I might not get this perfect, but I'm going to do it anyway because this is what it's about. It's about connecting and staying and staying together, <laughs> looking out for each other. So, yeah. Yeah, and I've used this quote a couple of times in presentations, and um, I think this is very apt to end on it, um, from, from Bernie Polly, who's a nursing instructor at UVic. Remember, everything you do makes a difference to the people and nothing you do will fix the system. Mm, yeah, so really keep that in mind, because the work that we're doing, it really does help the people, even if it doesn't feel like it because they're having a hard day. Everything you do will help people because that's what we're doing. We're caring and compassionate people. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you. Um, there's a list of resources here. 
Um, all of these things are available at our on our website under the coronavirus uh, section, all of the handouts, all of the previous uh, recordings. We're going to put this up as a audio file as well. So you can listen to it in your car or wherever. Um, so please do connect with us to get those handouts. You can also just email Jim or send us an email and we'll get everything that you need in terms of resources out to you. Cause I know you want more paper. <laughs> you want more emails right now. Corey, I just want to say thank you again. I know I've been saying it a lot, but all of these resources and information and practical advice on how it actually applies has been so valuable to us and our members. So thank you for providing that for us. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you to all of you out there doing the hard work. Yeah, and I'm just going to put up, if you do want to get in touch with Corey, you can email him here. I know he's always happy to respond to your questions and comments. If you want to join him in advocacy, if you want to find out more, uh, here's how you get a hold of him. All right, everyone. Thanks for your time today. Hopefully we'll see you again. And don't forget to fill out that survey. Um, just tell us what's going on for you and, and what you need. And stay safe, stay calm, and stay connected. Take care. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19 specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore HSABC. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.